in keeping with our last episode, guess what was on TV today? And has been on TV in a rather continuous loop for the last month or so. Event Horizon? Begin, begin again. <laughs> begin again, okay. Begin again has been on over and over. I keep coming back to it. I'm like, you know what? Every time I revisit this movie, I like it more and more. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I, I always appreciate a good argument. I always appreciate an impromptu show. But uh, it, it's given me chance after chance to consider my opinion. And I'm, I'm still very much of the, the mind where I was when I left it. And I'm still very much of the mind where I left there it. But I love Sing Street. I love, I love the follow-up. So. I was going to say, at the very least, it gave us that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 160 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. I do apologize off the top for the lengthy, lengthy delay in coming out with a new episode. It seems like it's the second time this year I'm apologizing for a delay, but what can I say, folks? I am at the mercy of what this year gives us, uh, and we will be talking more about that as we go ahead, but it's been really difficult to find the the type of material that I feel merits discussion uh, and, and offer something else. But I realized this week that I probably should have turned to today's guest because when we saw each other just this past week at the bar, it pointed me towards several films that were not yet on my radar that I probably should have been seeing that would have given me much more to talk about <laughs> than, God knows, than X-Men or, you know, than... than Finding Dory or any of these, which are all, you know, they're nice enough, but I just feel like they're, 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 they're leaving nothing. Uh, and that is because uh, he gets to see it all, and, and he covers it all, uh, all for the greater good. He's Grand Poobah at intheseats.ca, um, and we are outside on a breezy but beautiful summer afternoon here in Midtown Toronto. Dave Void is here. How are you, man? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you for coming out on a long weekend and everything. Like, like no cottages, no nah. no parties, no barbecues. That was yesterday. Oh, okay. Back to work today. <laughs> that explains it. Okay. If Dave, if Dave is a little groggy, that, that's the explanation as to why. On episode 160, we'll be discussing the Neon Demon. Turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Mr. Boyd. This is now your enemy. So, Dave's first appearance on the show was way, way back on episode 93 when we talked about Elysium. He is technically a three time guest because he showed up again. Uh, as we mentioned off the top of the show on episode 116 to discuss Begin Again, but that was more of an impromptu, you know, pistols at dawn at the bar type <laughs> smackdown that we didn't do all the questions and everything. That was just, come on, you know, show up at the pub and prepare for a fight while we roll tapes. And, and it was they, a good fight. It so. was, yeah. I, I would I would encourage people to go back and listen to that episode. It was good, it was a good time. Um, so we're now on the second round of questions, um, officially. But on episode 93, we learned that the first movie Dave had ever seen was Return of the Jedi. The last movie he'd seen at the time was MacGruber. The unseen classic or essential was Billy Wilder's The Apartment. I assume you've seen it by now. Yes, I have. And you love it like I, we all do. I do, do. yes, absolutely. The film he'd wish he'd made was Network, and I skipped past it, but the worst movie he'd ever seen at the time, I'm sure that could be bested now, is Planes. Um, could that be bested now? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> time for round two, though. David, what is the film that you like that nobody else does? Oh, you know, I had multiple kind of answers for this, but really I got to go with, from a couple of years ago, uh, The Man with the Iron Fists, directed by the RZA. Oh, God. Starring Russell Crowe. 
Lucy Liu, oh, a man. bunch of other people. Yeah. I admit it is not a good film. Okay. But what I think this did to the mass populace is because with what Tarantino did with Kill Bill and everything else, sort of the legacy of the Shaw Brothers movies from yeah. the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s coming out of Hong Kong kind of got over-romanticized. Mm-hmm. And I, I fully admit to loving those movies, but I know damn well they're not very good movies. Okay. And I think this sort of brought that to light. Even though I still love it, I, I, I acknowledge why everyone everyone hates it because in reality it's not a very good movie it's, it's corny as hell let's back up a step so you are you're a fan of all those Shaw Brothers movies like kind of like Tarantino is yes I'm a fan I like I can appreciate what they do right but they're not necessarily what you would call classic films would you even call them all things being equal would you actually call them good films a small number of them okay. and there are hundreds of them okay and this is more in the spirit of those than, than I, Kill Bill, which I would say so. A yes. bunch of other stuff. Yes. Okay. Yeah, like you're right. I, I certainly haven't heard anybody talking about the man with the iron fists in the time since then. Um, and and you know, like, do you at the same time do you kind of hold that in, or do you try to convince people you really should see this movie, or, or do you kind of go at it in a guarded way? You know what? A bit of a guarded way because there are like there are some elements to the movie that I love and that really sort of embody sort of the classic Shaw style of filmmaking. I'll even point people back to sort of a specific Shaw Brothers movie of the you know the three or four that are really great of the hundreds that were made. You know right. what I mean? But yeah, it's I will say there's a little bit of guardedness to it. I think that's key though because there's <coughs> something to be said for. You're not gonna like this. I did, but yeah. that, but, uh, but like you can say that speaks more to me yes. than it does to yeah. the film or to anybody who's gonna come into it. For sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> have you ever tried to convert somebody? A couple of times. How'd it's, it go? it's not gone well. Oh, <laughs> sorry, man. Um, you know, I, I listen. I might give it twenty minutes. See, so see how it goes. <laughs> um, conversely, <coughs> what's the film that everybody else likes that you don't? I gotta go a little off book. With and this. you're not allowed to say begin again. No, no. Right. I, I gotta go a little off book with this, and I gotta. I actually gotta pick a TV show. Hmm. I have sure. never been able to get into the Orange Is the New Black at all. Okay, okay. So, like, yeah, we, we don't talk a whole lot of TV on this show, but why not? It's, let's do something a little different. Um, Orange Is the New Black. Now, it's a film. Uh, that's a show that gets a lot of love. It, it certainly gets a lot of people buzzing every June. Not quite to the extent of some of the fan shows, like. Game of Thrones or Walking Dead, yeah. which are pretty much the only fan shows that are left yeah. at this stage of the game. Um, but it certainly does get people buzzing. Now, you try... Okay, so when you tried digging into it the first time, how far did you get? Oh, through the first full season. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, I got through, full, I got through a full season, but it was a slog. I'll admit okay. it was a slog. Okay. It just, it never really... It didn't click with me, and I mean to be honest, I loved her other like Kimmy Cohen's Weeds. I mean, I loved Weeds. Yeah. I thought it was a great show. Yeah. But the, a lot of this really felt forced, and it, to me, it just felt they were doing things for the sake of doing things sometimes, and I never really sort of bought into any of the character arc. Okay. Now I'm not going to sit here and say you're wrong because I probably am, but that's fine. no, no. You know what? Like it's it's a show. I was really late to the party. I did right. not get into that show until season three had dropped. So we watched 
we watched season one and season two, and then even when season three dropped, we didn't jump on it right away. Like we just finished season three a few weeks ago. Okay. Okay. Um, so I was very very late to the party in terms of Orange Is the New Black, um, but I remember hearing a lot of people talking really really good things about it. Um, what I would say is, like a lot of shows, it changes um, as it goes along, specifically in the way that once you get out of season one, it becomes less about Piper. Okay. 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 And <laughs> one, everybody agrees that she's the worst. Okay. She is such a flake. And even though she gets herself into some really, really shitty situations, and once in a blue moon, you will feel for her. Right. Um, you don't like her, which is so strange to say because it's her story. Yeah, yeah, Right? Yeah. Um, and you don't even like her in comparison to the other white girls that are there. Right. Right? You kind of... You've got these three... Fractions, four fractions, really, because you've got the faction of the, the the white population, which is the smallest group. You have the black population, the Latinas, right, and then you have the guards, which kind of have their own shit For going sure, on, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of the story of these four communities all jammed in there together, and that gets much more fleshed out once you get past season one. Season one is just way too much about Piper. Once you get past that, she's kicked further into the background. Okay. Like, there's not an episode that goes by that doesn't bring her in on some on some element, but that's that would be my suggestion. It goes more ensemble as opposed oh, yeah. to... Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah that's yeah, okay. Yeah, by right. far. Like, the, the, it has some of the most talented women working in TV all in one place, like, all of whom could probably, if not lead, then co-lead their own shows. Right, okay. Um... So I that that's my that's my thing is all right. on the one hand like I get it because I, like you I was I, I didn't get it at first and I was late to the party so I'd say if one of these days when you're when you're bored or something like that we're into summertime now so there's no TV yeah, yeah, yeah. go on to season two okay when it really kind of gets itself better more settled under its feet and maybe you might find as I said if you don't I would no I mean I can see that too just because I wasn't like nothing against Taylor Schilling it just it didn't she didn't click for me mm-hmm. I never really got drawn into her story it you know felt what, I, I, weak. I think that's part of it too is Taylor's not the greatest actress yeah and if if if, Bill, if Piper's story was being told by another actor then it, it's a shot that maybe we would care about her more but we see you so don't care about her yeah. for so long yeah. um, what's one of the last films to make you cry I had a stock answer for this okay but <laughs> I was gonna say room Okay. Just because, you know, Mama Needs My Strong, Cut the Hair, just a bawling. Mm. But I, the other day, like, getting ready for this, looked on my on my Blu-ray shelf, and there it was, Zhang Jimu's Coming Home. Oh, man, okay. Which is such a beautiful but tragic story about love. Tell people what it's about, because I, I, I am a firm believer that that film didn't get nearly the exposure yeah. it should have. Tell people about this movie. Uh, basically, in a nutshell, uh, and I mean, I, I won't try to pronounce actor names just because I'll butcher it. <laughs> Everything is in turmoil. China is in upheaval. This man, who is a teacher, he's a dissident. He is anti-government in every which way or form. He has to hide. And he's hiding from his little daughter, and he's hiding from his wife. When he comes back at some point just to see them, he gets intercepted by the cops. And then he gets locked away for years. Yeah. When he finally gets out, he learns that his wife, suffered. It was, it was, she suffered an injury, and she has amnesia. And an emotional trauma. And an emotional trauma, and she has amnesia. And she is still waiting for her husband to come back. 
Yeah. And he's living, sort of coexisting with the daughter and with his wife, and the wife has no idea who he is. But yeah. she's ba- he is basically taking care of his family, even though this woman has no, absolutely no clue who, who he is. Yeah. And it's just, it's a shattering, shattering film. So I saw that film at... Uh, TIFF Before Last, I want to say. Yes. Right? Okay, so TIFF 2014. That movie... Didn't get released until, like, March... Yeah, that movie, it it sat on the shelf, and then it got got released in, like, in 2015, and it just, it it flew completely under the radar. I didn't hear anybody talking about it. It didn't get any kind of foreign film uh, love from from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Uh, it didn't really get a big release. Even. No, it didn't. Yeah. And it just kind of, you know, Zhang Yimou is he's an immensely talented yeah. director. Is like uh, House of Flying Daggers is him, yes. right? Yeah, and yeah. Hero is him, and he's just he's, he's such such visual splendor in his movie. Yeah. And this is a movie that is so dialed down in that respect, but at the same time is just such amazing craft in this yeah, movie. It really um, is. The scene that you were talking about when he first when he first comes home. Yeah. Could be a clinic in editing. So that film when I saw when I saw that at TIFF, I actually saw that with a friend with uh, you know our, our Australian friend Sam McCosh. Yeah, yeah. And she gave me heat because I actually um, I was I was getting misty. More more than misty. I was getting full on weepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at one moment I was like, yeah that got me crying and she just goes, I know. <laughs> uh, was there any, you know, one? Okay, so good, good call because that's yeah. a call. That's a movie that made me cry as well. Um, are you an easy mark when it comes to the films making you cry? You, you know, in, it's it, it'll happen in the weirdest situations. Oh, okay, like sometimes I will, and sometimes everyone else will be crying and I won't. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've been there. Um, yeah, the, uh, was there was there a particular moment without spoiling things about this movie? That's two years old, and then a lot of people didn't see. I think it really just when it comes down to the realization, because initially we don't know, we're unsure of the relationship between the husband and the wife who still has amnesia. But when everything sort of gets laid on the table, and that sort of one pristine moment towards the end is just like, Ugh. yeah, you're done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was I was gone before that, but uh, I, that that is a that is a great moment. In the movie of your life, Mr. Voigt, who plays you? Yeah, you know what? I want to say, uh, like, Chris Pratt, but from early Parks and Rec when he was still a bit fat. So <laughs> <laughs> When he was, like, going crazy for puppies yes, and yeah, shiny yeah. shoes. Yeah, and... it's kind of my life right now, so yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it, it's, it's funny with Pratt because if we had rolled the tape back four or five years and you told me, this guy, he's going to be one of the biggest stars in the world in a few years. I was like, you're out of your cotton picking. Well, exactly. He's yeah. fun, like he is really funny. Yeah. Right. But I, I would have been like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, he's he's gonna be a Marvel superstar. Shut up. Now he's carrying the Magnificent Seven remake with Denzel. Yeah. He's basically playing Steve McQueen. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I um and, and like uh, you know that no, that's a good choice because listen he's a he's a very lovable everyman <laughs> that's that's a good call you know and and and. What was the line on Parks and Rec? He just cut out beer and he dropped 50 pounds. <laughs> exactly. I love that they just offhanded, you know, acknowledged how he got in shape in just like one line in the season premiere. That was awesome. Um, Pratt would be a good boy. I, I would I would, uh, I would, go for this. Um, last but not least, what do you think you're going to be watching next? 
Oh, I know what I'm going to be watching okay. next. I'm going to the Lightbox to watch uh, Kurosawa's uh, Ron. Oh, as a this part is of true. The, yeah, yeah. As a part of the uh, Shakespearean retrospective, all the all the screen is a stage. I think they're calling it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that's that. That is true. You know what's funny? I I think I mentioned this to you the, last week. That was actually the first movie I ever saw as as a like a TIFF presentation. Right. Before I was going to the festival. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they were doing their when when. Before the light box was even around, right? When they were doing their year-round stuff at the AGO at Jackman Hall, um, I saw that as part of their Cinematheque uh, series. Yeah. Ron was the was the first one I ever saw, and that was like was my first Kurosawa yeah. uh, that I ever saw. Um, was one of my first foreign films. Like at that time, I could probably count the number of subtitled movies I'd seen on one hand. So that was that was an experience going in too. I mean, this is going to be a 4K restoration. I know. It's going to look amazing. Yep. I mean, especially after the Lawrence Arabia restoration that they showed yep. later yep. earlier this year. That was just, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it's way. it's um, it's kind of a gateway drug to, to Kurosawa, really. Like I, It's funny, because our friend Rick Vance was actually telling me the other day that he's never seen Rashomon. And he's he counts himself as a huge Kurosawa fan. And I was like, how is that one of the ones that's left? Yeah. Just because I, feel, I find that that is one of the easy entry points. It's short. Oh, for sure, yeah. You know, it, it's it's referenced in so many other movies, um, but Ron is also one I think is a pretty good entry point. Absolutely. It's length is a little against The length it. is a little restrictive for some people, but yeah. it's, it's, it's... I like to call it sort of, if you like Braveheart or if you like Gladiator, yeah. this is the kind... You'll like yeah. something like this. Yeah, yeah. for sure. There we go. That's more about Mr. Voigt. Uh, we'll learn more about him when I argue with him on uh, some future podcast. I'm sure that's coming. Uh, but in the meantime, <laughs> it's time for us to turn to the new slang. We're going to go back a week or two um, to a film that's making the rounds on the art house scene. It's the Neon Demon coming up right after this, folks. Two hearts, one pause. I was your lover. Course, broke The Neon Demon is written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. It is co-written by Mary Lewis and Polly Stentham. It stars Elle Fanning, Jenna Malone, Keanu Reeves, Christina Hendricks, Carl Glusman, Bella, Heathcote, Abby Lee, and Alessandra Nevola. Neon Demon takes us into the fashion world of Los Angeles. It's this world that the very young and very pretty Jessie wanders into, that's Elle Fanning. Like so many youngsters with dreams of fame and fortune in their heart, Jessie has next to nothing to her name and comes from nowhere special. But she's dead set on an industry where talent counts for nothing and looks are all that matter. To that end, Jessie is fortunate. She has the looks. This fact is recognized by a makeup artist named Ruby, that's Jenna Malone, who in effect takes Jessie under her wing, and it's a fact begrudgingly recognized by models Gigi and Sarah, that's Bella Heathcote and Abby Lee respectively, who might first see Jessie as a one more wannabe, but soon realize just how much of a threat she poses. As I mentioned off the top of the show, it has been a dreadful summer. The studio <laughs> pictures have given us precious little of value, and the indie circuit hasn't quite filled the void. But into this blank space steps the Neon Demon, a film some love and some hate. And spoiler alert, I'm more towards the latter camp. But if the point of art is to provoke and inspire, we need to consider both ends of what is provoked and inspired. So, pop quiz hotshot, is there intrinsic value in making something hated. If you are going to release something out into the world and you aim to be divisive, is there value in that? Yes. You've basically answered your own question. Art 
in many like as much as we love the entertainment value of film and going to the movies and complaining about why X-Men Apocalypse sucks or why it doesn't suck and yada 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 it's still art and art has to be divisive it has to spark conversation it has to spark creativity it has to be able to engage us on an emotional level be it a positive one or a negative one so if you're gonna roll you know 20 million dollars of the studio's money into something you're I doubt this was a 20 million dollar movie but well okay like don't get me wrong we can make really handsome things cheap now yeah so let's say 10 Okay, and at it's, the most, and it's yeah. not. It's not. It's not a big studio that did this either. No, but no. If you're no. going to roll ten million dollars of an investor's money into a project and say we're going to put this out into the world, you're you're down with saying, and we know some people are going to hate this. Yeah, I'm a fan of Kanye West. Okay, I, I say that without apology and without explanation. I'm a fan of Kanye West because, at the very least, the man is never boring. Exactly, he is an asshole. Yeah, but. That's kind of what rock and roll is about. Yeah. You know, before everybody loved everybody and everybody took selfies with everybody and all that shit, rock and roll was about bad men doing bad things. Yeah. And, you know, creating from that. Yeah. So Kanye does this. Yes. All the time. He says stuff and does stuff and performs stuff that he knows is going to spark a reaction. Yeah. I, I'm I'm certainly now of the opinion, you know, whatever, however deep we are into Nicholas Wondering Reffin's canon, seven right. eight films, yeah, like that he that, is yeah. very much of that cut of that cloth that he is going to make stuff that he knows people are not going to like at all, yeah. but he still wants to put it out there because he feels that there's merit in it. Yeah, um, I, and that's the thing. So the crazy thing is. I, I, be, I believe it should exist. I don't necessarily know that it needs to be a mainstream movie. Is this a mainstream movie? Well, like it's playing in theaters. It's not something that's just making the art house rounds. Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. Not something, you know, it's 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 got names in it. It's it's not something that's teeny teeny teeny, um, but it it's it's something that is designed almost to provoke. Um, but we're putting the cart before the horse. So we didn't talk too much. Uh, general thoughts. What did you think of the Neon Demon? I really liked it. Okay. However, Refn is starting to show his flaws in his sort of style of filmmaking. Okay. Because just after watching Neon Demon, as stunning and as visceral and as occasionally upsetting as it is, yeah, you can really tell who he's leaning on, the influences that he's been leaning on hmm. throughout his life. You can watch Neon Demon and go, okay, there's Michael Mann, oh, there's Dario Argento, oh, there's this, oh, there's that. It's becoming a little too obvious. Like, I almost want to see Nicholas Winding Refn do a Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I, and I mean, I, he actually, and if you look up his... his, his oh, he wanted, he wanted to do, I know he, he mentioned doing Wonder Woman yeah. this week. And I mean, if you look up his credits, he directed an episode of Miss Marvel for British television. Oh. I'm kind of curious to see that. Yeah, yeah, I would be too. Um, but okay, wait. We're getting ahead of things here. But okay, so you said you dug it. What did you dig about it? Artistically, it's probably one of his more self-assured films. Visually, it's it's stark. It's evocative. The images that he puts on the screen are a character unto themselves. Mm. I mean, for example, the moment where she's first in the studio and it's all white and she walks out into this white void. Yeah. That's such a beautiful fucking scene, pardon my French. 
but it just it draws you into the ridiculousness of this world and it's just she is this one little and I mean this is her own perception of she is this little shining light beacon in this world that she doesn't necessarily understand but she's beautiful so she can figure it out I'm conflicted so you know it, if I'm just going in a general sense um, you're 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 right. You're absolutely right. It is one of the most beautiful films I've seen in a long, yeah. long time. There are images in this movie that are gonna stick with me, like both both still and moving. Yeah. They're gonna stick with me for a long time. Um, you know, you mentioned the whole the whole walk into white. Um, there's a scene later on that's uh, that's kind of. Uh, Done with um, done with a strobe yeah, light yeah, where, yeah. where the people are moving around. Um, there's there's scenes in the lake going that involve a swimming pool. There's scenes at the very end that involve another swimming yeah. pool. Uh, the 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 final climax of this movie um, is both repulsive but visually so yeah. so interesting. Yeah. So on a technical level, it's it's incredible. It's yeah. it's one of the films of this year that is going to stick with me by far the most. And, and I'm, you know, I haven't even kind of mapped out to talk on this episode about music. Right. Because the music in this movie as well, what he gets out of Cliff Martinez and what he gets out of people like Sia is is just so energetic. Yeah. And so lively in a time where that kind of thing is becoming more and more and more of an afterthought. Right. But we're going to try and tap dance around it and we will talk about it a little bit later. The, the end of this movie, the final act of this movie. Yeah is where I found things getting really repulsive. Yes. And because of that, I can't resign myself. I can't apologize for the rest. I can't use the rest to prop it up. And that's completely fair. Yeah. And on top of that, um, you know, it, it deals with some themes that are real. Oh, yeah. But I, but I think are not the kind of thing that I want to go to a movie to see and, and it made me feel really really uncomfortable so if I like just if I'm going in a, the broadest sense I'm like I I didn't like this movie I appreciated this movie for so much but I but if I talking about did I like it I'm like I don't know I felt really sick coming away from this um, let's talk about Refn for a second because this is very, very much his animal, and yeah. he's a guy. He's been around for a while now. He's been around what, like ten years. How about that, yeah. about that, and he's made the leap from um, the European scene onto the North American stage with this, and only God forgives yeah. and Lord knows drive for yeah. it. Um, where, where, like, where do you stand on him? Because I know a lot of people who they see his name and they run. Yeah, uh, and you even just mentioned a moment ago that he seems to be. Hodgepodging together other directors. Like, do you think? Do you think he's got something to say or something to show, or is he just another hack that knows how to make a really good mixtape? That's. I think that's the ultimate question, and I mean, I don't necessarily know. I have the answer to it because even if you look back at stuff like Pusher and Fear X, there are elements that he's borrowing. Yeah. But there's good stuff of his own that he's doing at the same time. And even something like Drive, which is obviously sort of his big, I want to say North America, like we're, we're North was, American. That was his coming out party. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. mean, people like us knew about stuff like Pusher, <coughs> Bronson, and, yeah, yeah. And, and Valhalla Rising. Right. But everybody found out about him because of Drive. Right. Which is basically him making Michael Mann's thief. Mm-hmm. I think he's close to being his own entity. Okay. Because the way he's putting things together, like you say... 
especially with Drive, especially with some of the earlier stuff, there still is a distinct voice of his that we're getting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm a Tarantino apologist. I love Tarantino. I do too. But there are things that he does where he gets so enamored with, oh, look at what I'm doing. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, just calm down, you know? Yeah. Get back to the story. Yeah, yeah. Like, I loved Hateful Eight. Oh, so you're the one. <laughs> but in especially, I mean, there was that moment in the the second half of the film where he keeps doing the focus pulling with the 70 millimeter. It's like, shut, just stop it. Yeah. Stop yeah. it, you yeah. know? Um, I, I think Refn is... Refn, okay, here's the thing I think with Refn is... He is, with every year that passes, he's getting more and more pieces in the toy box. Yes. And that is what's working to his advantage, is he's a guy who I think, regardless of whether he's cobbling together other bits or just pulling it out out of his own head, he was working with very, very limited tools. Yeah. And as his name becomes more and more known, and as these small studios decide to do pictures with him, he gets cooler and cooler toys. Yeah. So, what he's technically capable to do catches up with what he sees in his head yeah that is a good thing yeah okay totally. and so and that's the thing is that if he had tried to make this movie back when he made bronson yeah it wouldn't look nearly as handsome oh, no, exactly as it does so and i mean here's the thing you use tarantino as a reference i would almost argue that his career path is almost like he's almost at that he's at that precipice where chris nolan was where at some point somebody has to offer him a franchise or a hundred million dollar movie and more or less give him... Reference? Yeah. Nobody's going to hand him a franchise. No way. They, okay. Or if, at least... If somebody will hand Lars von Trier a franchise, then they'll go or, ahead and or, a franchise. Or hand him something... Meaty? Meaty. With that more I than would, a twenty million dollar, okay. like let him have yeah. 50, 60, 70 million to play with. As that I would to believe before he's handed a franchise. Fair enough. Okay, like I, I, I could see him making something on a level of heat before I could see him making something on a level like that has to be as four quadrant as Guardians of the Galaxy. That's fair. That's not that I fair. wouldn't love to see yeah, yeah, yeah. Nicholas Woody Reffin's Guardians of the Galaxy because I think that would be amazing. But my God, um, Elle Fanning is front and center in this movie, and. I think we can both safely say that she's become probably the most talented fanning. Oh, by far. It, it's kind of, it's kind by of far. Weird, it's kind of weird to see this happen. Um, and what she okay? So first of all, she is she does a lot in this movie well, well, with while while doing very little. Absolutely, yeah. And that's hard because you know if you're standing still long enough, you're just not moving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's a difference between letting it all come to you and just you know just standing on the sideline, but. Every look that she gives is very either charged or naive, and there's no real in-between. Um, it just kind of depends on the moment for her yeah. and what other people are projecting onto her. Yeah. Right? But then there's also what she represents, and she knows she represents it, right? She yeah. shows up. She is in life. She is 16. In this movie, she is 16. Yeah. And she knows that in the culture we have built yeah. that that is the ideal. Yeah. Fair as it is, that's a, like unfair as it is, yeah, I should yeah. say. That's, that's a whole other conversation that we could be here talking about for a long, long time. <laughs> um, and yet, so, so her performance in this movie, first of all, is really something special in terms of a Refn movie. 
Like oh, she absolutely. she's doing more here than what Carrie Mulligan was doing in Drive. Oh, by far. And she's even doing. I'd even argue she's doing more here while still taking the same approach than Ryan Gosling was doing in Drive. Absolutely. Um, this is we, easily the best performance he's gotten out of somebody since probably Tom Hardy and Bronson. Yeah. I thought she was absolutely fantastic. She carries she carries the entire film. Yeah. She carries it effortlessly from beginning to end. And I mean, it's this it's this naive character, but she's not necessarily that naive at the same time. And I mean, I really think the whole movie, at least for me, got summed up in that one scene where she's in the bar with her photographer boyfriend, the two models, and Alessandro Nivola. Yeah. And she's just, you know, the boyfriend wants to leave, and she just says, well, why don't you? And she just has this stone cold look, and it's like, okay, you're you're lost, you're done. Yeah. And it was like it was perfect. Yeah. It's so hard for a character like this to always sympathize with them, because you kind of get the feel. This is usually a character that rises too high too fast, right? Yeah. And just becomes kind of a victim of their own success, and you never feel that way about Jesse in this movie. No. You know, um, and and I I put a lot of that on Fanning, except that. The problem with that is that it just leads to such an ick factor. Okay? Yeah. Every time that she she's put early on, she's put like smack in the middle of the male gaze. Of course. Um, when there's a scene, the scene you talked about when she steps out onto a very, very large, seamless backdrop, and it's and the photographer closes the set and it's just her yeah. and him, and he asks her to disrobe and he's very curt about it too. He's at Strangely, he's actually very prof- professional yeah. about the whole thing, but in the run up to that, to, to them actually doing the work, we all get that moment where it's like, "Oh God, here it comes!" Yeah, right. And we're "Oh God, here it comes" because we know what's coming, but we're also "Oh God, here it comes" because we're watching a sixteen-year-old do this. And there's, you know, there's no two ways about it. There's, she has no nudity in this movie, not because it doesn't call, it's not called for, yeah. because it's illegal. Yeah. And there's just no getting around that. Yeah. I think. But so, like that, that's that's one of my knocks against this movie is I can't get on board. When I'm How spo- uncomfortable he's trying to make us feel. Yeah, and, yeah. and like he's deliberately it. it he could have done this with an 18-year-old, like, so easily could have done this with an 18-year-old, and I wouldn't feel this way. Yeah. And because he specifically chose somebody who was 16. That bothers me so deeply. I like, and I guess, like, maybe it didn't bother you. Maybe, there's a lot of people. I'm like, I'm not, not gonna hang that on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, that was one of the things that, as great as El Fanning was in this movie, I'm like, you shouldn't be here. I think this is I mean, this is like Jodie Foster in the Taxi Driver. But I mean, again, that's almost the point of the movie. It's, I don't think it works if he doesn't make us uncomfortable. I think he very easily could have plucked an eighteen-year-old unknown and lied about her age, and and we and we still would have felt this icky without it, without you know feeling like we're seeing something we shouldn't be seeing. But again, we grew up with Elle Fanning. We've seen Elle Fanning in other movies. I think if it was an unknown, we would there, there would not okay, have been okay. that attachment. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's fair. We've seen Elle Fanning in Super Eight. We've seen her in the Sofia Coppola thing somewhere where she was great. And yeah, she, we always well, we all knew yeah. this is the talented Fanning. This right, is, right. Which is not actually to take anything away from Dakota Fanning. No, not she's at all. A not actor. at all. <laughs> it's just she's been eclipsed. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of somebody we've grown up with, so we got Jenna Malone. Yeah. Okay, as the Betty Davis all about Eve. Basically, yeah. You know, the matron. At the ripe old age of thirty-two. Yeah. Um, so, on on a story level, how clever was that? Oh, fantastic! I thought that was I thought that was brilliant. 
and, and her whole like her whole arc in this movie. Yeah. How like I think we've seen her since she was like nine. Yeah, something like that. Like, yeah. Well, I don't know how old she was in Contact, but that, that was the first time I can remember seeing her, and that was back in '96. Yeah. Right. Jesus, twenty years ago. Oh, so she would. Yeah, there we go. She would have been like she would have been eleven. And wasn't she in My Girl with Culkin with Macaulay Culkin? I want to say so. Yeah. But yeah, like so somebody we've seen who, like my joke always on Jenna Malone is why doesn't she age? Yeah. She's like I'm like time seems to be passing, but I swear every time I look at her, she could feasibly pass for twenty for sure. Um, or 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 less. Um, but her. So we get her as this seemingly protective older sister mother figure. To Jesse, which is a neat touch for starters. For starters, but I mean, at least for me, watching the movie, I always felt, and I mean, that's the one thing about the movie I kind of loved, because the entire movie that Elle Fanning is in, like this entire universe that Elle Fanning is in, is predatory towards her. Yeah. And Elle Fanning has absolutely no idea until it's absolutely too late. Yeah. As much as she thinks she does, she doesn't. Which is weird. You know what the funny thing is? The marketing of this movie kind of makes it seem like she's going to be the one who's going to be the predator. But that's just it. I think that's that's the fun twist, because she's not at yeah. all. No. Um, yeah, like, yeah, the neon demon is not her, folks. Um, but Malone... Um, well, when she's, on the, when she's on the catwalk, and she's looking into the audience, and she sees that flash, and it's like, it's not her, it, it's them. You yeah, know? yeah. Malone, you know, she brings her, she takes her under her wing, she puts her in, into the into the orbit of these two other models who immediately are just basically want nothing to do with this girl yeah. and just basically mock her. Yeah. Um, they were bitches, I'm sorry. They, they, they were. They, yeah. No, they, they were mean girls, absolutely. Um, and, you know, at first you're wondering how is it, why is it that this makeup artist is doing it? And, and, and it becomes strange. Like, I don't think that... There's no suggestion that she was ever an, uh, a model herself. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's this jealousy... That boils up this want that, that, that boils up underneath her and it becomes in a movie where she's put into you know harm's way or in, into precarious situations by men yeah. over and over and over I gotta hand the movie this it is a really cool turn yeah that it, it's it's the women around her specifically Jenna Malone that really are the ones to put her in harm's way that I think that one elements. I mean, even just to simplify that even more, for me, watching that entire movie, I kind of love the fact that there was never a moment we were at ease. Yeah. Ever. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, right from right from the go. You know, we're, we're never... The opening shot of this movie where she's splayed on that couch, on that fainter, with, yeah. you know, made to look like she's been Sliced killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, right away, you're like, oh, God, I'm seeing something I shouldn't be seeing. Yeah. And, yeah, every room she walks into, it's like, who's going to cut her down? Who's going to tell her that she shouldn't be here, that she doesn't have what it takes? And on and on. Male, female, older, younger, does not matter. You know? Yeah. Somebody she's working against, somebody she's working for. And even the scene with Christina Hendricks where it's like, and Christina Hendricks knew. But like I, she like wins I was, the whole thing. It's like I'm releasing you into the wild, and I don't then, care. And that, yeah. like, that's actually a good thing. Is like Christina <coughs> Hendricks is the, is the kind of actor who can usually just slice a person into sixteen pieces and right. not even care. And yet, she in this movie is the kind of person who actually seems like she's genuinely caring right. for Jesse and worried about her. So you know, between the two, between like Hendricks only has the one scene and she's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenna Malone is. You know the complicated beating heart of this movie. Yeah. Um, that I think is just that—that that is actually a really great touch. That that is the actor who you hang that on. 
I'm going to sound a spoiler warning because we got to talk about this for a second. It's the final act of this movie where it gets really bad. Yeah. Okay? So, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I would just say skip ahead to the next section because uh, we need to talk about some stuff here. So, after going 100 minutes or so where the danger, the real danger is the psyche of Jesse right. and the industry of fashion altogether. Yeah. And feeling like these are the people who are out to harm her. These are the people who are out to protect her. We get to the last act and we turn that shit on its head. Yeah. Okay. And we get to we get her to get sexually assaulted by Ruby. We then get her to be Destro- physically destroyed yeah. by the models along with Ruby yeah. and disposed of in a truly heinous fashion. Yeah. And then we get to the end of this movie and see the repercussions on the models and it's, you know, it, it's, there's like no, there's no winners in yeah. this movie at all. There's one person who kind of seems like they're a winner but even then, uh, they're, they're just the final. That was where I couldn't take it anymore. Um... There's, it's one thing to push buttons, and it's another thing to piss on my shoes. And I really felt like when I got to the final act that this movie was pissing on my shoes. A little bit. I'll give you that. I will give you that. I resigned myself to the fact that Jesse was not going to make it out of this movie yeah. intact. I thought that the damage wasn't going to be nearly this kind of damage. Yeah. And not only that, but to take the person who was protecting her and to turn that into her greatest threat, I think that that's a huge dick move. If that was a if that was a dude, we would hate this movie even more. If it was a guy who was protecting her, who led her assault, and who sexually assaulted her, we would not have the time of day for this movie. Yeah. On, on, on one level, it's it's the art versus sort of the sensibility. Like in very in very many ways, this is a European film. This is a film that is not meant to cater to North American audiences because it's all right. It's going out there to push those those buttons, and in many ways, with what happened with her with Jenna Malone's character, almost gets foreshadowed beforehand with Keanu Reeves' character in that moment in the hotel room. Yeah, but that's that doesn't make it better. Like I know she's again, I know she's at risk. The second that she walks into the movie, I know she's at risk because she's so out of her element. Look at all those all those shots where she's got LA behind her yeah. and she's dancing along on like the, the wall top. It's like you are a very, very small person in this very, very big world and it is out to destroy you. But I didn't actually want to watch it destroy her. You know? that that's That's the crazy thing. And then, as I said, like it would be one thing just... We need. I think the. I think it needed the tragedy. It needed, sort of that the visceral fall, for someone who had been having herself be pumped up by the world around her for her I mean, angelic beauty. We needed that. Sort of. But then I even like, you know, I was even feeling bad for. I, I can't remember. I can't remember if it was Abby or which of the two models it was. But the one that's getting just at every turn is just getting destroyed, right? She goes on a go-see, and the director is, like, folding little paper airplanes while she's doing her thing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, her, her her friend is the one who's made to stand up and go, is this beautiful? Well, no, it's not conventionally beautiful, because you can see this. And see. I was feeling bad for these women. I was we're, feeling... We're supposed to. I was... Yeah. But nobody is... But no, no, but no, but then... I can't with that ending. I can't. Like, I, I felt bad for them in that moment. But then as time went on, I can't feel bad for them after that. We're not supposed to. What are we supposed to feel then? 
We're supposed to be sickened. We're supposed to be horrified. Well, I guess because mission accomplished. These people <laughs> are in this world, and they had to go to these horrible depths to survive by their own perceived notions. And I mean, case in point, uh, I got a chance to look at the screenplay. Yeah. After the what happens to Al Fanning's character, there is a deleted scene. Okay. Where because there's the scene where the two models are at the shoot, and the photographer pulls one of them aside in this deleted scene and goes. You look different. <laughs> and then just walks away. As in, what you've done agrees with you. Exactly. Oh, God. We're not even talking about, like, here's the other thing, is that General Malone goes and does something in between here that is also, like, it serves no purpose. She does something when she's when she's back on the job uh, in between. Oh, it yeah. serves absolutely no purpose in this movie other than to shock us. Yes. And I, I, was, I wasn't shocked. Again, I was repulsed. Ah, oh, I know, I, I can't. Here's the thing, though, okay? Even though I'm talking about this this end of this movie and, and how it turned me, this is not a boring movie. No, it's not. You know, this is this is not a film I like. It's not a film I'm going to have a really hard time. And in the case in point, it's a movie I like, but it's not something I'm overly compelled to ever watch again. Right, but I and, and like I I'm going to have a hard time qualifying somebody to go see that. Like you and I both do the same thing. If somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, what, what should I see this weekend?" Right, and you'll say, "Oh, yeah, you're in the mood to laugh. You're in the mood to think." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then you'll point them towards Synecdoche, New York. Or you'll point, you know, you'll you'll go off book and right. point towards yeah. something weird. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't even know where to begin qualifying a person to see this movie. And it's not even like I can say, "Turn your brain off and look at the pretty pictures," because by the time you get to the end, the pictures are pretty bloody gross. I don't think that you can because this is this again. This is the kind of movie that's going to survive based on the fact that it's not a standard... Like, narratively, this is some weak shit. Yeah. But you still are drawn into it. You are still compelled by it because it's the it really is the worst of us. And yeah. he's not just alluding it to us, he's showing it to us. Yeah. And it's not it's not even like the, the thing that when Corey Pierce was on this show a few episodes ago and we were talking about what may come with this movie... We were having the idea that it might just be a glorified L'Oreal ad, right? That it might be a lot like a lot more like Only God Forgives, where it was very, very stark, very still. You had to project, you had to do a lot of heavy lifting. Yes. And it was just going to be pretty pictures in an avant-garde way. It's not. It actually it has a very, very cohesive narrative. It does. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it it, it does the work, but I can't even I can't even suggest somebody just put it on in the background as pretty pictures because there's some pictures at the end that are just so damn disturbing. Again, this is the kind of thing where I can't recommend it. I can't not recommend it. All I can say is see it. I can't even say see it. That's the problem. I can say see it yeah. because it's it's one of those things. And I mean, especially see, not everyone will have the chance to see it big, but when you're in a big theater with the sound design, with what's coming at you visually. Yeah. It is a very immersive experience. Whether yeah. you are horrified by it or whether you're delighted by it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I, I might not. That's the thing. I actually, you know what? I might not have had the reaction I had had I watched it at home. If I hadn't been stuck in the middle of this theater that was actually pretty damn empty. Yeah. You well, know, so it wasn't, it wasn't even like I was stuck in the middle, like I was feeling claustrophobic. I was actually feeling very isolated yeah, yeah, yeah. by this movie. Um, yeah, th- th- that's, I got, you know what? I got to give it credit. It's even a film that I don't like. It's given me a it's 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 given me a lot that's gonna stick with me. It's given me a lot to talk about, but it, you know, and, and that that's that's saying a lot, you know, in in that. And, but I mean, it is saying a lot because I mean that really is the purpose of art. Yeah. Be it a blockbuster piece of you know entertainment or yeah. 
an art film like yeah, this. No, that's, that's, that's the point. We end our reviews here on the matinee cast with a souvenir or something tangible or intangible that if you could, you would and take from the film and keep it. Dave Voigt, what is your souvenir from The Neon Demon? I would say the overall effort in design, in giving us something that, while narratively weak, yeah. still engages us on an intellectual level. Either in a good way or in a bad way. Like you, want, okay. So let's say, like you were giving curation of the AGO for a week, you would want this as, a, as an installation. Absolutely, yeah. Um, for me, it's 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 a little more. It's similar, but it's more specific. My souvenir is the photography from this movie. There are a lot of moments oh, that yeah. I think work as still images. Oh, totally. That I could just I could create an exhibit on these still images, like you know all the models oh, sitting sure. in their in their underwear in the go see. Um, you know that opening shot that we talked about. Just on and on, so many times that this movie really does some amazing things with imagery. Yeah. Um, the guy, like, I, I gotta give it to Reffin, is as much as he pushes my buttons and creates something like this that I can't necessarily get behind, he knows how to take a shot. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, that, that that's it's not an easy trip. We rate here on the Matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Dave Boyd, what do you give? The Neon Demon. I give the Neon uh, three out of four. Holy shit. Okay. Um,. I'm stuck on a two. That's fair. I can't. I can't recommend it. Um, I can see why somebody would dig it. Uh, I I can see why somebody would absolutely despise it. I've seen lots of talk out there about people who absolutely loathe and appall this movie for for the reasons that I mentioned. And well. they're all completely valid. And they are absolutely valid. And I'm just I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, I'm I'm certainly glad I saw it, but I can't point. I don't know who in the world. I would point this to maybe another artist. Like, if I knew somebody who, I think was, that's, who, who yeah. was part of the art scene, I would say, you gotta see this movie. Yeah. But but other than that, hey, listen, I would love to hear from you folks on this movie. Maybe you are one of the people who love it. Maybe you hate it even more than me. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash darkmatinee. What did you think of Nicholas William Reffin's The Neon Demon? Come on back after this. We're gonna take a really quick break and uh, record over for the other side right after this. choice <laughs> for the other side on this episode um, was curious. Um, David took me in, uh, in light of the Neon Demon back to 1997 uh, to a film directed by Paul Anderson. Paul W.S. Anderson, not yeah, Paul Thomas yeah, Anderson. Yeah, don't make that mistake. Uh, it's Event Horizon, folks, about a mission into space where everybody goes nuts and there's demons that take over bodies and a rescue mission goes completely awry. Uh, it's like the the, the the scariest things of 2001: A Space Odyssey and Alien, uh, but and, and but not nearly as good as either one of those movies. Um, Dave, I'm going to just start here. Why did I watch this movie? Because it is a trashy piece of nonsense, which in many ways the Neon Demon also is a trashy piece of nonsense. It is it is about these characters who go into this situation, into this environment, that is actively trying to consume them, pun intended, and they have no idea. 
and it all sort of unfolds and unfolds, and it's it's set up in a, like a borderline cheesy ass Hellraiser, all the worst horror tropes you can think of, mm-hmm. but you kind of enjoy the ride of the nonsense that these characters are going through because you know damn well the second they get there it's like you should get the fuck out of there but they don't (laughs) you say enjoy I don't think that word means what you think it means um so I watched this this morning and I didn't entirely know what I was getting into I just knew it as a name right okay and so I put it on and the credits start coming up and it says a Paul Anderson movie I was like oh god no (laughs) it's like what just happened how did I agree to this oh um so this is a like you say it is this is trashy 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 as is the neon demon in many ways well but no but here's the thing is that this is the opposite of what we just talked about in terms of the neon demon is 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 artful trash where it gives me something to think about and gives me something that will influence me and something i'm going to see in other movies I, i i guarantee you when I post after I post this episode, I will never think about Arendt. That's, that's, that's completely fair. But so I, I don't know. Like it, I think I've talked about this before in the show, but I think there's something to be said for for good trash. And I certainly don't think that Event Horizon is it. Did you see this movie in a theater? Oh yes, I, I have. Oh yeah. wow! I have, yeah. I, like just like you wanted to see it, or you got in there and it was like, oh no. Like, like, explain to me your first experience with Event Horizon. First experience was in the theater, and it was just, it was a, I was, I mean, I am and still am a sci-fi junkie. That's why I went. At the first watch, it was like, okay, I'm liking it, but I know it's got a lot of problems. But then on the second and the third, and I got to see it again in the theater back in the days when the Toronto Underground was open, they had a screening of that. There, like, there is something to be said, and like you say, something like the Neon Demon is artful trash. There is something to be gotten out of it, and at least from my perspective, I kind of enjoy the journey of sort of something that's obvious trash. Okay, what it's you, not what, a good movie. What do you but enjoy it, that? I enjoy the ride. Okay, to be honest, I enjoy sort of the beginning and, to, and the end of. This like all these characters are in this environment that they should not be in, but they're in it anyway, and right. they're going through it. And I love sort of the over-the-top sense of foreboding when, in reality, <laughs> in, I mean, granted, it's a science fiction movie set in Pluto or whatever Neptune or wherever Neptune, it was. Neptune, yeah. In reality, anyone with any sense would have gotten the fuck out of there. Yeah. But they didn't get the fuck out of there. I enjoy when logic gets broken and okay. you don't get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Um. You know, here's something... Okay, I don't know if you've asked this before, but if not, the, the, the ultimate takeaway of this episode is that I specifically want you to ask this because you get to talk to talent far more often than I do. Okay. Okay? How do good actors make bad movies? Because, at the very least, we have Lawrence Fishburne in this movie, who is hella talented. Yes. And Sam Neill in this movie, who is also hella talented. And yet, this movie is, by all accounts, terrible. And I think, like, it's terrible at the script stage. There was no way they, you know, that they wandered... Once in a while, I imagine, they just wade into the waters and realize, oh, crap, I'm out too deep, and they're just stuck. Yeah. They either got to start swimming or they're going to drown. Right. How do you think it is that good actors end up making bad movies? I think, I think it's a two-prong answer. Okay. One is the obvious one. Um, I'm getting a paycheck. It's going to pay for my summer house. It's going to heat the pool. It's going to send my kids to private school. 
whatever. Mm. That is the first obvious answer. I think on the second side of it, a lot of it comes down to either A, wanting to try something different. Because again, you look at this movie, none of the people in this movie are science with science fiction or horror veterans, with the exception of maybe Sam Neill, who's yeah. done a couple. Yeah, yeah. For the most of them, this is like, oh, fuck it, let's try this. Right. In other ways, like you say, and I mean, I would agree with you, I don't think on a script level it necessarily read all that great, but things can read better than they get executed, and that's a fact. True, that's true. Um, I, I, I just, it's one of those things that I, so yeah, like you say, I always think to myself, they bought a house, okay? They, they, they need they need a paycheck, you know, Little 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 Fishburne needs a new pair of shoes. Yeah, something. Robert De Niro is one of the greatest actors of our time, but I'm sure Dirty Grandpa paid for a lovely summer home. I'm, I'm good sh- for him. Well, that's like it's the kind of thing that I would actually, <coughs> you know, when you're a- away from an actual turkey, because I wouldn't want to ever put an actor on a spot when they're doing press for something that they, you know, you can see that they're shining a turd. Of course. But I would want to ask them just in, in in a normal conversation, two kind of two questions: is one. How do, how do you end up making a bad movie? You know, because you can take... And they might just say, you know, the money's good. But two, how do they resign themselves afterwards? Do they just own it? Do they... After the movie's done, they just own it. They're like, yeah, we... You know, I mean, a lot of times, they don't necessarily know. That it's bad? They gotta know. Not always. They Sometimes, not always. Sometimes they don't. Really? Oh, man. I, like, uh, seriously, the next time you get a chance, I, like, tur- turn the conversation to, 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 and who knows, like, you may find out something about bad movies that none of us know. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, they, they may find, they, they, they may say, listen, they're terrible, I have a whole lot of fun doing them. Well, I don't Which, of, and I think that may be part of it. And I think a lot of that is, you know, or, well. or they may say something like, I'm, I was, I do, sometimes I do a favor and it doesn't end up working out. Well, there's in the that end. as well. But, but I, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just spitballing. Somebody like, Julie Delpy may have that answer, or somebody like, yeah, you know, like you said, De Niro might have that. Answer. The next time you're talking to De Niro, well, uh, not, yeah, yeah. but you know what I mean. Like every, just there, there's very few actors out there that are flawless, and all of them have at least one bad one in their canon. And I just, I'm, I'm just kind of curious. And just, you know, like it wasn't the exact question, but I was, I was in a situation with Ethan Hawke. Okay. And Ethan Hawke is the kind of actor who has done some fantastic films. Yeah. And he's done some turds. Yeah. And he, he basically said two things. Well, not, not, not even two things. It was one thing. Just that you never know until you try. True. So, yeah, so, yeah, so when, like, you can't, when you have to commit to it, you don't know. Yeah. Hmm. True. Because, I mean, like, there's a lot of great movies that on the page look ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, I, I, I got to admit that this movie made me appreciate Winning Refino a little bit more. <laughs> um, because... You know, like going back, going back a film, only God forgives. I I took even less from that movie. That it's weird for me that I'm coming away from the Neon Demon and Only God Forgives with the same sort of ranking, which is why I don't really believe in ranking movies. Right. When I had such opposite ass reactions to the two of them, but I mean, Ruffin, even when he tries to push buttons and tries to make something nasty, yeah, you know. He's at least still putting some craft into it. Paul W.S. Anderson, like, I almost feel like he's just cashing paychecks at this stage. Yes and no. I he, mean, don't get me wrong, he's kept the Toronto industry, Toronto film industry <laughs> very nicely employed. There's something, at least for me, there's something to be appreciated about 
sort of making the low end trash. Like Cor- Re- Roger Corman knew he was Come making on, shit not, movies, not for, the, but not for the money he gets handed. You know, that's yeah, the but thing. again, what, what could it's Nicholas, good money. It's not I great know, money. but what could Nicholas Winding Refn make with the kind of budget that he that Anderson gets handed for uh, Resident Evil Seven or whatever? Yeah. You know? Like he's he is definitely getting twenty million for these movies. <coughs> oh, easily, yeah. You know, not to mention how much money he gets in After Effects. For sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that that's kind of one of those things. Um, but do you ever watch a bad movie and then feel the urge to watch a similar good movie? Because as I said, like what I mentioned off the top of this, when I mentioned like two thousand and one and Alien, the, I guarantee you those are going to be some of the movies I watch this week. For sure. Yeah, but yeah. like, do you get that? Do you end up watching something? You know? You know oh, I'm absolutely, re- absolutely. And what was it with Event Horizon? When when you think about that, what do you think? You know, instead of that, I should probably go watch this. You know, I think it was Aliens. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Cameron Aliens or uh, like like Ten Little Indians or something like that. Um, you know, like as much as I'm like lobbing bombs at you for making me watch this, and really I can't complain too much because as much as I've opened up the podcast to get people to wa- make right. me watch things, I haven't really put myself into a spot too many times because more so because I have a veto. Here's the thing: um, I, 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 uh, I was listening to an audiobook um, a week ago, Jim Gaffigan. Okay. Okay. Um, it's called Food, A Love Story. Okay. And at one point he starts talking about McDonald's and how everybody likes to look down on people who eat McDonald's. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, Like people will say there's no value in it. There's no nutrition in it. It's cheap food. It's easy food. You feel gross after it, blah, blah, blah. But he brought up a good point. This is the thing I think about when I think about this. Right, and why yeah, I'm yeah. not really... That's fine, yeah, yeah. And he said we all have our McDonald's. Of course. Whether it's... Reality television, of course, it or is. you know, um, UFC or gossip mags or whatever. Like we've all got something that we spend even a little bit of money and energy on that we probably shouldn't. Yeah, and that is, that is, you know, dumb movies to a certain extent. I definitely think the lower end of the spectrum helps me appreciate the higher end of the spectrum a little bit more, while I can still get a certain level of entertainment. How so? value. Seeing where people came from, sure, yeah, and sort yeah. of an evolution because yeah. a lot. I mean, for I mean, I mentioned Roger Corman two seconds ago. A lot of talented people work with Roger Corman. Yeah, and to this day, Roger Corman produces some of the silliest, stupidest shit out there. Yeah, but it makes money, and it it's a business, and it keeps going, and God bless him. But yeah, you know, like David Fincher did an Alien movie that was not good. Yeah. Uh, Janae did a, an Alien movie that was not good. You know, yeah. Look at some of the look at some of the first scripts that um, the Joss yeah. Whedon, the Joss Whedon did. Yeah, David Lynch did the most ridiculous concert film I've ever seen in my personal life. Which one's his? Uh, the Duran Duran. Oh god, it's so ridiculous. Yeah, it's no. bad. And yet, and yet, you know, uh, Lordy. We've all got both sides. We, we all have our McDonald's. To embrace them, if yeah. we stay too much on one end of it, it'll we'll get lost in it. This is true. Well, that's Event Horizon. <laughs> you know, I, like I could have shredded the movie. I just, I didn't feel like I. We barely even talked about what happens in that movie. But I'm just like, it's out there. It's silly. Again, it's for the trash aspect. Yeah. It's not necessarily for, for the, the narrative yeah, or the for performances. The or we will talk about that end of it in a moment now <coughs> because we're going to move on to one more movie and close out the show right after this. Maybe did a bad, bad thing. Maybe did a bad, bad thing. 
my choice on the other side, I stuck with the late 90s and I stuck with the beautiful trash aspect that uh, is front and center in the Neon Demon. I went back to 1999, Stanley Kubrick movie, his final movie before he passed away, uh, Eyes Wide Shut, starring Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Um, scene, uh, the, the story of a couple just kind of coming apart at the seams and dealing with their own perceived infidelities. Um, do you remember the first time you watched this movie? Absolutely, yeah. I think I saw it at the old Englington down the street. Around the corner from yeah, here, yeah. okay. And, like, what did you think of it the first time you saw it? It was 99, I yep. want to say. Which was so a very good year for movies. So I was 22. I, like, I remember I was in a heavy Kubrick phase at the time, and I mean, I loved I Like, I enjoyed it. Yep. It wasn't sort of, I think I was being a, sort of in a very snobby sort of Kubricky period, and like okay. nothing touched 2001 or Shining <laughs> or you know Clockwork yeah, yeah. or that kind of thing. But I mean, watching it again, and I watched it again yesterday, and I mean, there is a again, like you say, it's a there is a the beautiful trash aspect of it is is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. But sort of the subtle nuance in those extended shots with Tom Cruise just walking up and down the streets which really should be like watching paint dry, but they weren't. The way they were set up, they were so beautifully done. And, I mean, it's a movie that... It's not necessarily something I need to revisit a lot. Yeah. But it's definitely an important part of the Kubrick canon because it still showed what the man had left in the tank. Yeah. It's it's funny. Like, it's slowly becoming one of the Christmas movies I watch. Uh, yeah. You know, because it all takes place right before Christmas. Um... I it opened at Christmas, too, it if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, it was a summer. It was it, a summer? Yeah, movie? yeah, okay. yeah. It, it's, it opened in uh, around now, actually. It opened around July. Okay. Um, I So this was the only, just because of age, this was the only Kubrick film I saw in theatrical release. In the first one. Yeah, in the yeah, first yeah. one. Same, seen, with me, same with me. I've seen pretty much all of his movies in a, in a theatrical setting since then. Um, but it was the first one I saw in, in theatrical release. And it's kind of weird because I didn't like him for a long time and this was kind of my entry point um i hadn't seen i had not seen 2001 no i hadn't seen 2001 yet wow yeah um i didn't get dr strangelove i didn't like full metal jacket uh i had not at all seen lolita or barry Lyndon. right i liked the shining um you know, but that's that's kind of that's cheating. That's that's like Kubrick for beginners, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So to to go into this movie and be like, oh, okay. So we're talking about this and this and this and this. like, I I dug it, and I think part of it actually came down to the perception of what I was getting into because the one thing that I like with going back and looking at movies, you know, yeah, from yeah. the past, is you can't ever get back the context of how it was presented. For sure. And how this movie was presented, what people may not know, is that it was Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman together on screen for only the third time in their career. Right. They were a hot power couple at the time. Yes. Like, like iconic sexy couple at the time. And it was perceived as let's go watch a dirty movie. Yeah. With these really really famous, powerful yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And that's not what this is. No, not at all. At all. And that I think that was part of what led the the 
the reception of this movie because a lot of people didn't like it. Yeah. Um, but you were saying you were one of the ones who dug it. Oh, absolutely. At the yeah, time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's okay. So you kind of now this is more in the Reffin realm of good trash. I would say yes. I would agree with that. You know, like you were ta- like you were talking about how handsome this movie is. Yeah. Um, and and even just the story, it's a pretty basic story. Oh, it is. Yeah. Um, and and like like how did you dig the story? Because the story is kind of silly, in some respects. It is, yeah, it is a silly story in many respects, but at the same time, I think I was more drawn to the performances as opposed to the narrative, because I remember watching the movie for the first time, and I was, I mean, I was, and I still am a Tom Cruise fan, and I remember watching it and going, my God, Nicole Kidman is killing it in this movie. Mm-hmm. This is her fun, this is her movie. Mm-hmm. Tom is reacting to everything that she does. Tom's journey is based entirely on Kidman's performance, which is just impeccable. I remember the question <coughs> I used to ask when after I saw this movie the first time is, which one of these two characters is more wrong? The one who thought about doing something but didn't actually do it? Or the one who went looking to do something and couldn't get it done? Oh, the one who went looking to do something and couldn't get it done. Really? I think so, yeah. Huh. Well, you think if, for instance, if Lily Sobieski had of convinced him to take leave of his morals, right. or like you think that that was he he was already putting himself into a situation that was infinitely worse than saying I was ready to go. Like act like acting on it but not finding it is worse than wanting it but not acting. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like it, I don't I don't know that there's a right answer. It's just it's one of those it's kind of one of those little like you know feeling out a person question that well that, and I mean it's I mean it's it's one of the older questions because I mean I'm single you're happily married but you're you know you're you know if there's a beautiful woman walking down the street my wife notices her first usually. yeah well that would, that would, I mean again that's kind of my point we're ingrained to look we're ingrained to think we're all gonna think yeah about doing the wrong thing. Right. It's the ones who act on doing the wrong thing. I think... You it, can't like, condemn well, see, someone for... No, I think what that actually comes down to is what you were saying about Nicole's performance and killing it because she articulates just what she was thinking. Right? It wasn't like she looked and got, oh, hot guy. She... She... Goes into long depths, and she did this to hurt him. Obviously, yeah. yeah. And it, like, and don't get me wrong, like that. That's one of the things I think is cool about this movie. So you know, Kubrick, of course, he's one of those directors that you know we we mentioned his name in hushed tones, of course, and and you know he's got almost a perfect canon, right? He, yeah. It's it's really really crazy to think that here's a guy who cranked out more than ten films and didn't really have a turkey in the bunch, depending on how you yeah, look yeah. at it. But yet. This is the one that a lot of people don't like. And I think part of the reason why is because when he got to a certain stage in his career, he got to a point where the last movie was always shit upon. Yeah. Until the next movie came. Of course. And it's like, oh, well, it's not as bad as that was. I'm totally wrong on that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you come back around and you look at of course. the last movie and you think, eh, it's pretty good. Yeah. And I, I sometimes I wonder if that was the pro- why it took people so long to come around to eyes wide shut because there was nothing to come after it and take the sting away. Which is why I almost think Malik's Knight of Cups got so shredded because it's the same movie he's always made, but it was within like a two, three year gap of his last movie. 
See, uh, we like I, you're you're leading me down a tangent here, which is kind of a weird place because I haven't seen Night of Cups yet, but I do remember that I the only movie of his that I didn't like was To the One Right, right. So right now, we'll see. I may I may watch Night of Cups and love it. That's distinctly possible. And I mean, the other thing about Eyes Wide Shut, which is why I think, and much why Neon Demon is getting such a visceral hate reaction. Yeah. It's the kind of movie that reminds us how base we are. What was the last line Nicole said yeah. in Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, something we don't say on this show. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny because I think Eyes Wide Shut, it shows how crazy you can go with a movie. I, like, I, I think that it's actually a textbook with how far you can push arty trash. Sure. And that's the thing. I think Neon Demon goes too crazy. That's fair. Because... The irony of these two movies, and actually the first reason why I thought about it, our, our friend Kurt Halfyard was actually the person who cemented that we should talk about Eyes Wide Shut, but it was the first movie I thought about as an other side, because what we were talking about is one of the really repulsive things in the late going of Neon Demon that Jenna Malone does, yes. is something that Tom Cruise was rumored to be doing in the run-up because the production of Eyes Wide Shut was so secretive. Right. Right? The trailers showed nothing. Yeah. The teasers showed nothing. And it there were months of reshoots. Oh, yeah. Hundreds yeah. of takes, a long production, rumors of he does this and he does that. And one of the things that Cruz was rumored to do in this movie is something that Jenna Malone actually does yes. in Neon Demon. So I was like, you know, we were all clutching the pearls when the thought of, of Tom Cruise, you know, supposedly having done this. Right. Now you're actually going to go and do it? Oh. And I don't even want, I still don't want to tell people <laughs> what it is that they do because I want the shock to hit them full bore. That's the thing. I think Kubrick as as he's so meticulous and so calculating. I think he always had an eye on the line. He had a defter touch at you walking know? the line. Absolutely. And, and like even right, right down like one of his older movies like Lolita. You know, he knew how far he could push that. Yeah. And it even, kind of, it even came down to shooting that in black and white. Yeah. Because you saw the exhibit. Yeah, of course, yeah. You saw those color images yeah, yeah. Uh, of the girl. as And, like, how, again, how icky yeah. did that make you feel looking at those? Yeah. It's, oh, man, already trash. to push it. Yeah. He knew to go another step or two beyond that, but not beyond that. Yeah. You know? So... My ultimate takeaway from Eyes Wide Shut, and it, it may very well apply to the Neon Demon, um, I, and, and it will apply to a lot of other movies that are very divisive uh, that we've seen come and go as we've started you know, covering them over the last several years, is eventually the worm will turn. I've, I'm sure you've seen this too, and I've seen this. Dozens and dozens of posts out there about why we're wrong about fill in the blank with a turkey from years past. Of course. And... Every film that is considered a bomb upon its release, yeah. just give it time because somebody will come around on it, including, like, again, Eyes Wide Shut. It wasn't exactly a bomb. It's, it's probably best to say it was divisive. Yeah. Critically divisive, commercially just shredded. Oh, yeah. You know, nobody nobody who paid to see this movie liked this movie. No, yeah, yeah. Present company excluded. But that, I think that's my ultimate. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Like, have you, like, uh, like, a film that was out there where somebody's like, why we're wrong about blank? And you thought to yourself, what the hell? Can you think of one off the top of your head? Uh, the Lone Ranger. Mm. Maybe. Like I know, I know that it has its defenders. I think they're wrong. But um, but yeah, that that's one for sure. I've seen a lot of people who are like, "There's this and this and this in the Lone Ranger." 
Yeah. And and time may come along and people may dig it. I don't think they will, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's that's my takeaway is give it time and. Well, I mean, and then also, I mean, just to go back to the point about sort of these movies, especially with Eyes Wide Shut and Neon Demon, we live in a world where, as much as we don't want to admit it, we're base creatures. Yeah. And if something reminds us of that a little too much, we push back against it, even yeah. though we're pushing back against it publicly, not necessarily yeah. privately. Yeah, no, I, I like it. I like it. That is episode 160 of the Matinee Cast. Uh, come on back Monday, July 18th. I'm really looking forward to episode 161. We will be talking about Ghostbusters people. Uh, Dave Voigt is on InTheSeats.ca, uh, where you can find him covering uh, <laughs> all sorts of trash and all sorts of uh, you know prestige films. What do you got coming up this week that people can look forward to? Uh, going up Monday. Oh, okay. Uh, I've actually got an interview coming up uh, with uh, Kent Jones, oh, cool. the director of... Uh, uh, the Hitchcock Truffaut uh, documentary. Yeah. Because he's coming to town to introduce a few movies as a part of the Hitchcock Truffaut uh, retrospective playing at the Twilight Light Box. Nice. And just regular coverage, yada, 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 the whole nine yards. People can look forward to all that. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, they can find uh, me uh, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at In the Seats. But if you want to find me personally, you can find me as the Pop Culture Poet, Facebook, Twitter, the whole nine yards. Nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes store. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Neon Demon, Event Horizon, or Eyes Wide Shut can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email Ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter where I'm matinee underscore CA, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, man? Just uh, thanks for having me, man. You this owe me a show. beer for Event Horizon. That's <laughs> my final thought. For Dave, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.